What kind of impacts have mercury poisoning, hydro, and other environmental catastrophes had on one indigenous community in Ontario, Canada? Why do governments and industry continue to make money through environmental industries damaging native soil in spite of commitments to restoring truth, reconciliation, and justice? How does a movement to create protected spaces on behalf of mitigating climate change and enhancing diversity in fact do the opposite? Did modern-day conservation techniques have its roots in the eradication of indigenous people in America? This week on the Global Research News Hour, on the day marked as Earth Day on our calendars, we devote the hour to examining how indigenous people and tribal societies play a role in protecting our land and water, and how their efforts are obstructed by governments and industry, including those who pledge to save nature. In our first half hour, we are joined by Judy De Silva of Grassy Narrows First Nation in Canada to talk to us about the unusual convergence of just about every destructive event Indigenous peoples are faced with. In our second half hour, an interview with Stephen Corey, the former director of Survivalist International, to talk about the slaughter and eviction of tribal people all over the world in the name of conservation and efforts to confront it. On this week's program, governments, industry, and conservationists versus tribal and indigenous peoples. Aren't there better ways to mend the earth? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 22nd, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The news agency Reuters recently interviewed the Italian farmer Carlo Vittorio Ferrari, who runs a farm with his brother near the town of Cremona in northern Italy. Among other things, they have about 2,000 pigs, which it is now becoming unsustainably expensive to raise. He fears that their fourth-generation family business will be lost due to the conflict in Ukraine, which more and more people believe could be the death knell for global food security. This is because war-ravaged Ukraine and sanctioned Russia, in addition to being major exporters of wheat, maize, and fertilizers, were also major suppliers of animal feed globally. Europe's import-dependent feedstocks have recently declined rapidly and are likely to run out soon. That comes from the article, European Feedstocks Expected to Run Out Soon, posted April 21st, originally published on Free West Media. Amnesty International's Secretary General Agnes Kalemar has also fired another salvo in favor of Assange, noting 
that the United Kingdom, quote, has an obligation not to send any person to a place where their life or safety is at risk, and the government must now abdicate that responsibility, unquote. The prospect of enlivening extraterritorial jurisdiction to target journalism and the publication of national security information is graver than ever. It signals the power of an international rogue indifferent to due process and fearful of being caught out. But even before this momentous realization is one irrefutable fact. The plea from Assange's wife, Stella, sharpens the point. Don't extradite a man, quote, to a country that conspired to murder him, unquote. That comes from the article, To the Home Office We Go, The Extradition of Julian Assange, by Dr. Binoy Campmark, posted April 21st. If approved by the World Health Assembly, the pandemic treaty will be above and overarching the sovereignty of the 194 WHO member countries. WHO could declare a pandemic whenever it decides or gets instructions from the dark financial and power cabal pulling the strings behind the UN curtain. The World Health Organization could decide on international lockdowns, mask wearing, social distancing, and much worse, like forced vaccination with, as we now know from the COVID-19 vaxes, causing disease or even death. By now, the world knows, or ought to know, that these vaxes are not vaccines, but experimental mRNA injections, injections containing varying biochemical and mostly poisonous, even deadly concoctions. WHO could declare a worldwide pandemic for the common flu, pretty much what they did with the so-called COVID-19, a virus that was never isolated, never identified as anything else than the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, virus that hit China from 2002 to 2004. That comes from the article, The World Health Tyranny Towards the WEF Great Reset of Misery by Peter Koenig, posted April 21st. Within the last week, Israeli occupation forces raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque five times, indiscriminately deploying the use of batons, tear gas, stun grenades, and rubber-coated steel bullets. Widely circulating videos depict Israeli soldiers engaging in unprovoked violent attacks against women, journalists, medics, and people with disabilities. On Friday alone, Israel's raid injured more than 153 Palestinians and ended in arrests of at least 400. Reports show that those injured in the initial attack include three journalists, three paramedics, and two compound guards, many of whom were shot with rubber-coated bullets. During this attack, medical teams were prevented from accessing the scene. That comes from the article, Canada Must Condemn Israeli Violence at Al-Aqsa, posted April 21st, originally published on CJPME. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Grassy Narrows is an indigenous community about 80 kilometers north of Kenora in the northwest section of Ontario. 
It has been faced with colonial threats from almost every direction. They are ailing as individuals and as a community, both physically and spiritually. We're going to speak now with one of the great mentors in that community to talk to us about some of the realities that they have been coping with and about their relationship with the settler community. Judy De Silva is a mother of five. She's the environmental health coordinator for Grassy Narrows First Nation. She helped inspire young people to develop a blockade against logging in 2002, which became the longest lasting blockade in history. And in 2013, she received the Michael Sattler Peace Prize from the German Mennonite Peace Committee for her work in nonviolent resistance of the Grassy Narrows First Nation against the destruction of nature and for the preservation of their indigenous culture. She will be in Winnipeg for the annual event known as the seventh generation Mother Earth Water Ceremony. And it is an honor to speak with her now. Judy De Silva, welcome back to CKUW. How has your community for... how has your community been coping lately? Uh, holy jeez, it's been it's it feels like a really long time since we've been to Winnipeg for the the seventh generation Earth Day ceremony. Um I think due to COVID we, we had we didn't organize anything for a while and and then um my daughter actually called Suzanne McCray and she she asked her is there an Earth Day uh, event this year? And then when she said that, then they, they all started organizing. And Geraldine Shingos is going to do the water ceremony. And we'll have a Camp Morningstar representative there from Hollow Water, Suzanne McCray and Thor Aikenhead. So um, I guess the reason for your call today is to find out about Grassy Narrows and a lot has happened since since people have come to Grassy. We we have a Mercury care home now that's gonna be built and that came from um um a, an ex minister Minister Philpot. She promised us in 2017 that we would get a Mercury home. And so it's going to be starting to be built in in the fall of 2022. And it's going to take a few years for it to be finished. But that'll give mm. us time to train people to be workers in there from Grassy. And then we also got uh, $85 million clean the water, but so far the water is not being cleaned. It's like in the fourth year of of it being studied, the river system where the mercury is the most highest. And I guess just falling back to, like these are all like uh, good stories, but at the same time, like I'm at the ground level of uh, my community members suffering from mercury poisoning and it's still there even with all these things that happen like we we still see like our relatives um passing away from
from mercury poisoning. And um, Dr. Donna Mergler, who's a scientist, a research scientist, she's a world-renowned mercury expert. She's going to be doing her second year mercury study on our people. And last year, when they did the first first group of people, it was like 100 most poisoned people with um, mercury readings that were really high. Mm-hmm. And the doctors that came were very shocked with all the health effects that mercury is having on our people. And Dr. Donna Mergler also helped us do a health survey that we finished in uh, 2017. And still, we're still like learning from it. And one of the things she learned is that our people, the young people, suffer from suicidal tendencies 23 times higher than all the 133 First Nations in Ontario. So, like, that's really scary. And um, we've lost so many relatives to that and young people. But I'm just trying to paint a picture of, like, the reality on the ground, you know, those other stories of like, oh, they're getting mercury home or they're getting 85 million. We don't actually get the 85 million. It's held in a trust by government and a trust, like trustees from Grassy Narrows and from White Dog. So um, it stays in a trust and that's how they they use it to do studies. Mm. So it doesn't really actually like come you know, like get filtered to us except for like jobs here and there. Yeah. Then the mercury yeah. care home, it's not here yet. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah, that, that's quite a lot of impact there. I mean, that's on top of things like the hydroelectric damming on the English River uh, earlier before that. And the, 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 yeah. the mercury that, that got in the water, that was a result of a spill in Dryden. In the 19, in 1962, I think it was, or, or yeah. a little bit later, and uh, so you've been grieving from that, and you lost a lot of your basic uh, staples, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the hydroelectric had an impact on wild rice, and uh, the, the the mercury oh, had an impact on fish. Yeah, and so like those two things wiped out pretty much. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, you yourself uh, are, are suffering from ing- from the uh, mercury poisoning, right? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to make a correction, though. It wasn't a spill. It was an actual dumping, like knowingly dumping mercury, 10 tons of mercury into the river system. And um, a spill sounds like an accident, but um, actual dumping is like knowing you're, you're putting mercury in your product you know, and then you dump the mercury into the river system. And we live like 200 kilometers up uh, downstream from the Dryden Mill. And so 10 tons, the, the way I, I give a visual for that is like 20 half-ton Ford trucks piled on top of each other. And then you get a visual of like how many, how much mercury has been dumped into our river system. And um, the other correction I wanted to make, because people have this misunderstanding of drinking water and mercury poisoning. 
we we get mercury poisoning by eating the fish because the little tiny fish eat plankton and then as it goes up in the food chain the bigger fish eat the little fish and then we eat the big fish and then that's how we get poisoned mm. and thinking about other industries that poison our system you're right like the hydro damming has destroyed like our river system our water sanctuaries that we've had for thousands of years and the other thing is um i heard like well i know for a fact that there's a gold mine being built in wabagon um it's a what near wabagon first nation and it's going to have a tailings pond as big as mount Pauli. and it's called treasury metals and they're um they're they're um I guess they must have found gold over there, so they're going to have a big, huge gold mine, and of course they're offering jobs. But the tailings pond, if you know, if it breaches like it did in Mount Pauli, it will poison us again. And there's another thing, further up in Ignace, they there's they're saying they're going to bury nuclear waste at, in Ignace. And they're saying they're going to bury the nuclear waste, which is from southern Ontario, in Ignace, like a mile down into the earth. And it makes you feel safe. Oh, it's going to be way deep in the earth. But then down there in the pre-Cambrian shield is rocks and water that runs, you know, even little tiny cracks that are in the earth. And so these are all things we face in grassy narrows, like in our future. And not just grassy, like actually the the water goes to Lake Winnipeg from grassy. So like it goes through Wabagoon River and then goes to Separation Lake and then it goes towards um, Winnipeg River and then it goes to the Lake Winnipeg. (laughs) So it's like we're all connected you know like all these things that we face it will eventually get that way yeah i mean it's like i I don't think there's a single uh calamity faced by indigenous people that you're not going through (laughs) yeah yeah well well you know with the governments and, and corporations i mean for all the talk of truth and reconciliation and improving relationships it seems that uh well Entities like Weyerhaeuser and Abitibi, Bowater, and the provincial and the federal governments, they continue to act like rivals. I mean, if if there's Mm -hmm. money-making profits to be made on your soil and water, what do you make of that? Is it rooted in racism or or is it something more than that? Well, I've I've been in government talks, like meeting with government, with the previous chiefs and councils and um, like on acknowledge the late Simon Fulbister, like he worked so hard through all the years that that I, I was working alongside him with government meetings and negotiations and so far, like so forth, like, um, and each time I've gone in those meetings, it it was always like um, you feel truthful, like like I would feel truthful to go 
walk in there and to speak for people like the Mishnabek. But then you step in there and it becomes like, I feel like I'm in the 1800s or um, I feel like we're, we're not heard. And it's a really hard feeling to go through, like to, to feel like you're going to be treated as a equal. And then when they're talking about reconciliation, it, it doesn't fit. It feels like it's just a word. And I feel like we're not there yet. I feel like we're still operating in the old scheme that the government has made throughout all history, our, our history, and it doesn't work for us. And you could see that with the, you know, it started with the 215 children and then the people that traveled to see the Pope and it just becomes words. And um, these children that died in, in those grave sites, there, um, people made a really strong comment saying, Schools aren't supposed to have graveyards, and and yet, in you know, in First Nation, like um, I guess knowledge, you know, all across Turtle Island, there's a graves all over Turtle Island, and so for us, there is no reconciliation. It's all like every day, it's like we have to struggle and fight and argue to be human. Mm-hmm. And that's so simple, you know, to be human. Yeah. Well, could you tell me about how you met and forged a a wonderful relationship with the Friends of Grassy Narrows that that was based in Winnipeg originally, that that was different from, uh, you know, maybe settler activists, settler environmentalists, which uh, Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, agree on the environmental issue, but then sort of turn away because of, you know, what other issues facing the people? Yeah, I I think the first and foremost experience I had with the Friends of Grassy was they, they listened, they heard our words. And the second part was they stood beside us like a hundred percent. It wasn't like um, okay, Judy, you listen to your story and then, okay, bye. You know, like, it wasn't like that. It was like, they're beside us and there's, they still are beside us. They're like, um, support us. And we become like, even if we haven't seen each other for two years and then, then we see each other, it's like, we continue on that relationship of like, um, solidarity with each other and that's one thing I, I learned from the Friends of Grassy and also the Christian Peacemaker teams and they've moved on now like they're they're not part of our our struggle anymore and um, but they when they were in Grassy they're they're like a hundred percent with us so I learned like I, I wouldn't even say reconciliation with them it's like honoring each other and it wasn't one way it was both ways mm. mm-hmm. the, uh, the the 19th seventh generation uh, mother earth 
water ceremony. What exactly can you tell our listeners about the water ceremony and how it came about? Um, the water ceremony, I think it's being like shared all across Turtle Island, and um, I, I'm I'm feeling like it came from um, many women, but namely Josephine, the late Josephine Diamond, and she she walked around the uh, Great Lakes. I think it took her over 20 years. And she walked every step of the way, like all like carrying water. And, you know, she brought to light that we need to pray for water. And this water ceremony does that. And we we do like a, a prayer ceremony with that water. And then and whoever is conducting that ceremony, usually what happens is they'll pray with it. And then people share the water and then they walk down to the probably the river there. And poured the rest of the water into the water into the river. So it's a it's a prayer ceremony, and it honors that that water is alive, and that water gives us life. And Geraldine Shingus will be the one doing this this ceremony. And I see in the poster it says kids crafts and fun activities, and it says bring your drums and your rattles. So I'm pretty sure there's going to be uh, hand drumming, singing, so just honoring that uh, indigenous part of the the forks too. Like that was a very important gathering space in history, and you could tell by that human rights museum. Like they said that when they're building that building, they found um, um, burial ground under that building, so. It's a really important spiritual place that the uh, Dena Circle. Very appropriate for the the Mother Earth Water Ceremony. Yeah, well, it, it sounds really interesting, and it's, it's been a while since uh, I was there last, so I really appreciate seeing it. Uh, one final message before you go. Um, it's this interview will be broadcast on Earth Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what message do you have for people out there who are determined to protect the environment? Um, I've been saying this in different places that I've been invited to speak. And one of them is to for the young people that are in universities or in colleges or who are engineers or scientists or or even like just like earth protectors like the human race like we need to move away from the pulp industry which is using trees for for craft for craft mill they call them and for paper and logs and uh, check out Winona LaDuc in uh, White Earth, Minnesota. She has a hemp farm. And with hemp, you can make uh, paper, you can make clothes. And it's it's re- rethinking how we use Mother Earth for, for the things we need for the future. And the other thing I heard was in 1930s, a, a man used... Uh, straw 
to make paper and it grows faster than a tree. A tree like takes so long and yet a tree is so important to, for us to be alive. And how we use water, I'm so aware how I use water and you know, like how we waste water, how we can like treat it as precious. And industry is the worst enemy of water. Like it, they use so much water to produce gold. And I, I heard even like um, for the meat industry, they use so much water. So just rethinking for the future, like how we're going to use water, how we're going to make oxygen last, the trees give us oxygen. So it's not just grassy nails in this fight, it's all of us, you know, like humankind. So I guess that's my biggest message I want to say to everybody and make sure you come to the Earth Day event, you know, come bring your children, um, your families and just you know, share time. It's just a short amount of time, two to five, three hours out of a year. You know, come and show support and let's make this a big event. Miigwech. We've been speaking to Judy De Silva, mother, community advocate, and a renowned activist from Grassy Narrows, First Nation. Just a final note, Judy De Silva will be in Winnipeg on Sunday, May 29th from 2 to 5 p.m. at the Udina Circle at the Forks. Check the Facebook page, 7th Generation Water Ceremony, for details. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Stephen Corey is an Indigenous rights activist and was, until last year, the longtime CEO of the organization Survival International, which works in collaboration with tribal peoples to campaign lobby and protest for their land rights to investigate, expose, and confront atrocities committed by governments and big business, and to amplify the tribal voice to make sure it is heard. In 1989, the organization received the Right Livelihood Award with Corey himself giving the acceptance speech. Stephen is retired from his position as of last year. With this being Earth Day, we thought we would catch him, uh, catch up with him to, to get some details of his work. So Stephen Corey, welcome to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you very much. Now the basis of your work is, is a deep love of tribal societies. Where did that come from originally? Well, in, in my own personal case, it came from traveling uh, with them, primarily in, uh, in the Himalayas. I went to the Himalayas when I was 18 uh, as a kind of solo climber and had no idea about uh, what well, anything really <laughs> to, to be frank and i uh, was very impressed by the peoples i encountered in the himalayan valleys and uplands and began to realize that there was a basically a con trick being played on on westerners by the west the idea that, that the west had some kind of 
you know, superior right to, to progress or, or however you put it, some kind of superior civilization, I began to doubt and to, and to question that. So that's, that's where I started. Talk about some of the more dynamic work that you've done over the past 50 years. Well, there have been several key cases we've taken on. Uh, one notable one in Brazil, which was to run the international side of a campaign to try and get the land of the Yanomami people protected. The Yanomami, a very large, uh, numerically large group of South American uh, Indians in, in the northern part of Brazil and southern part of Venezuela. And they were threatened with, uh, basically, with uh, an annihilation from a Brazilian government road building program back in the 70s. And uh, as a campaign started in Brazil, we took it up and echoed it around the world. And it went on for several decades. And finally, in 1992, I think it was, the Yanomami area was recognized by Brazil. Previously, they were going to chop it up, drive a road through it, and that would have undoubtedly destroyed the indigenous people. Another case worth mentioning is that of the Bushmen in the central Kalahari in Botswana. There was a attempt to evict them from their ancestral lands by the Botswana government. Uh, partly it claimed this was because it was the, they lived in a so-called protected area, and uh, uh, and it was about the protecting the environment, and of course at the same time they were actually planning to open a diamond mine in the area. So there was a, again a long a long running scheme to evict them, which survival helped them fight, and we helped them take it to the Botswana High Court in the end. And it was actually the longest running court case there's ever been in Botswana's history. And finally, in about 2004 or 06, uh, the, the Bushmen won the case and won the right to live on their ancestral land. Those, those were a, a couple of highlights, but there have been literally dozens of, of uh, similar cases throughout the decades. Now, uh, when you talk about decolonizing conservation. What do you mean by that? We began to realize a long time ago, about 30 years ago or more, that the proposals to make protected areas in some parts of the world, particularly in Africa, threatened the uh, indigenous people who lived there and uh, they were threatened with eviction. Now, the more we looked at this over the decades, the more acute the problem grew. And we started looking at the history and the background. I, in particular, took an interest in this and began to realize that the, the world's protected areas, the, the great national parks, which start in the United States in the 1860s with Yellowstone and Yosemite, were actually constructed over the eviction and destruction of the indigenous peoples who lived in these areas and indeed cared for them. And that was still going on. Indeed, there's not a sizable land protected area in 
in sub-Saharan Africa, which has not involved the eviction of the indigenous peoples. And in some places, this is now the most acute problem they face. So what happens is that uh, conservationists come along with the support of government, and they say, we want to make this area a protected area. That means uh, no people allowed to live in it. And they uh, proceed to get rid of the local people. Now, why is this a colonial th uh, thing? Because if you go back to the United States, the, the American settlers of the 1860s, people like John Muir famously, I completely failed to recognize what the indigenous peoples had actually been doing to their to their environment, the way they had been shaping the environment, changing it over often thousands of years. And the so-called natural area, the so-called wild area, which the settlers were thought they saw, was in fact a heavily managed area, which had been managed for thousands of years, as I say. But the settlers didn't see that. So the colonial enterprise wanted to get rid of the indigenous peoples because they were in the way of, of the basically the ideology that the, the land uh, uh, was ill used by them. And it was the white people coming in who knew how to use it and take care of it better. So it's a, very much a colonial mindset and, and a racist one, too. So you're saying that the same instinct that caused the, the European settlement to basically uh, get rid of the, uh, the tribal peoples or, or control them in America, like for maybe for other reasons, it's still at work today uh, as we go forth in other countries? Very much so, yes, particularly uh, in Africa, uh, but also in parts of Asia. And I, we can actually see this increasing. Um, there's now a project to double the size of protected areas in the world. And this is sold as, as a great thing to turn 30% of the globe into so-called protected areas. In fact, it, this will be a complete catastrophe for peoples uh, and, and for that matter, for the environment for various reasons. Now, I'm aware that in saying this, of course, uh, uh, it, it might sound pretty crazy to somebody who's been brought up on the idea that, that you know, America's best idea was the national parks and uh, all, all conservation is automatically good and progressive and for the benefit of people and, and the world. So in, in pointing out the, the very acute problems, I, I, I am aware that I am raising an issue which is so deeply embedded in people's thinking that they're going to find it very difficult to, 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 to kind of wipe the slate clean and push the, re, the reset button and start looking at the thing more objectively and in a fresh way. But that's what it, that's what it needs. And it needs that urgently because uh, this, this project to increase protected areas is going to be disastrous. It's going to condemn... Uh, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people to uh, loss of their lands and, and livelihoods and self-sufficiency. And uh, it's going to increase global hunger. It's going to do nothing for the climate. 
Um, it's going to do nothing for pandemics. It's been sold on all these things. It's going to help pandemics. It's going to help climate. It's going to help preserve so-called wild areas. All, all of this is, is I'm afraid, um, complete nonsense. Uh, this is uh, something that's going to be moved at the Convention on Biological Diversity uh, coming up. And uh, for 30% uh, of the earth being preserved as protected areas, I believe. And um, could, could you maybe just expand on, on what the actual motives are? Because the conservation NGOs say it'll do all those things, mitigate climate change, reduce wildlife loss, enhance biodiversity, and, and so on. What, what are their actual motives? Well, that's, that's a very good question. I think um, there is a, a very deep-seated motive, which is control of the land. Um, if, if we look at the, uh, the, the protected areas movement, say, in Africa, we look at the foundation of, say, WWF, Worldwide Fund for Nature, uh, that was started uh, just a couple of months uh, of the first election in Kenya. It was it was it was rooted in 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 East Africa and, and the idea of what was going to happen in Kenya. The first election when uh, Africans could vote under the British Empire was in the early sixties. The people who founded WWF realized that independence was inevitable. India had become independent of the British in 1947. It was going to come in Africa too, and it was going to come in Kenya. They knew this. They realized this. They were concerned that the local African population was going to dis basically destroy the land and destroy the so-called wildlife, and that's why they started WWF. So it was an attempt to retain control uh, in an independent Kenya retained control over large areas of the land. Now, bear in mind, they're coming from an ideology which says uh, only white people know how to look after this land, know how to look after the animals and so on and so forth. We still see this, you know, endless poaching stories, so-called Af African so-called poaching. A lot of it is um, fabricated, actually. Uh, that's not to say there isn't some genuine coaching, but uh, nothing like the extent to which it's been um, told to us. So there is the idea of control of the land. Now, I think you can also look at, uh, at the idea that the peoples who live on this land, the indigenous peoples, are largely self-sufficient. They, they, they get their food and their housing and materials and indeed their medicines and a lot of these things from their immediate environment and always have. So to different degrees nowadays, they are self-sufficient. Governments don't like self-sufficient people. They don't like people without an address. Uh, they don't like people they can't control. And uh, these there's the assault on indigenous peoples, which have been going on, you know, for, for 500 years, if not longer, by the, by the European colonial empires, is now manif manifesting in this new, quasi-new context. It's not actually that new. It's all about control of the land, just as the colonies were about control of the land. In case you just joined us, oh, sorry, 
you said something else? Well, I, I, it, it's quite easy to point out why this idea of 30% protected areas will, will not do any of the things they claim it will, um, we, which, I, which I can go into if, if you like. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking to Stephen Corey, who's the former director of the Survival Survivals International and uh, active on uh, trying to save and preserve uh, tribal societies. Uh, Stephen, maybe you, you could just talk a, a little bit about some of the hardships that uh, the tribal peoples have endured in the name of saving species and habitat. I mean, these people are just hunting for subsistence and to defeat themselves and so on, uh, going up against uh, people who hunt for sport or something like that. I mean, what, what, what are the, uh, the, 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 the sorts of penalties that they're paying for that? Yeah, but, but before I do, let me just come back on one thing you said a, a moment ago, which is uh, using the word preserve in the context of tribal peoples. Now, now survival never has used this term. You, you can't, the, the idea of preservation, which kind of implies sort of locking people into some kind of uh, um, st uh, status quo, is, is, is not what survival or indeed I am about. We recognize that peoples change, societies change all the time. They always have, and they always will. And uh, what we prefer, the way we prefer to look at it is we're trying to ensure these peoples uh, have the right to determine their own futures and uh, to try to ensure that right is not trodden on and, 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 and stamped under by the powers uh, principally coming from our society, from so-called civilized society. Now, now what have, how have these people suffered? Well, the most uh, clearest way is simply being denied uh, entry to their land. They, they're removed from their land uh, and put somewhere else. Now, in that process, a lot of them die. Um, a lot of them get sick. Uh, they are prevented from going back in by uh, armed guards. Uh, so they are shot at, sometimes killed. Uh, they are beaten up by these these guards who 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 are called rangers, funded by the largely by the West, uh, funded by the big conservation organisations, trained by the conservation organisations. This is militarised conservation. These are kind of military units, and uh, they attack local people sometimes because they think they are poaching, sometimes simply because they've gone back into the land, sometimes uh, because uh, to settle um, local uh, grievances, and, and it's, it's, it's out of control, basically. And these are heavily armed rangers, uh, lauded by the conservation organisations, and uh, they, they commit terrible human rights abuses in places which are often difficult to access, and where um, nobody is keeping a record. And that's been going on for decades and decades. So entire peoples have disappeared uh, uh, under this. And of course, they're prevented from their own subsistence hunting, hunting for food. They're prevented from uh, keeping herds um, and, and the 
attack on pastoralism, herding is now a very big issue in, in East Africa and elsewhere. Uh, there is an assault on herding. Uh, the, the people are not allowed to move their cows or camels or goats onto these so-called protected areas, despite the fact that they've been doing that for centuries, if not millennia. And indeed that the, the landscape, as I said, in the context of places like Yosemite and Yellowstone has actually been shaped by the, the pastoralists have shaped the East African grass plains. The grass plains are there because of the grazing animals. Uh, so there's, there's this extraordinary situation in which the people have been looking after this land and, and creating it are now treated as criminals uh, and destroyed in the so-called process of uh, apparently trying to protect it. Now, I think there's a lot of uh, cynicism in all this. The 30% is a, clearly a completely arbitrary figure. Environmentalists like the famous E.O. Wilson wanted half, 50%, half the globe as, a, as protected areas. And uh, if they do get 30%, uh, God forbid, then uh, that'll only be the first step. Then they'll want more. So what's going to happen to the people who live on this land? Um, in, in Africa, at least uh, about a quarter, if not more, of the entire sub-Saharan African population is dependent on pastoralism. Uh, what's going to happen to them? Well, you know, the ones that survive uh, will be forced to, to move to the city slums to look for work, which often isn't there, to, to increase the number of um, people who go to bed hungry every night. We, we know that most of a billion people today, tonight, will go to bed hungry tonight and tomorrow night. And all of this will just get worse. Uh, so it, it's... It, 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 you know, it, it, it's sort of 1984 situation. We're told this, this idea is great and will save the planet and will do all these things. In fact, it'll do none of it. It'll make all the things it's supposed to help worse. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the, the people that you mentioned, like John Muir and uh, uh, E.O. Wilson? Uh, well, could you talk about maybe something about their backgrounds that uh, you know leads to this uh, conservation uh, method? I mean, is, do they have a certain sort of trait that's uh, even distinct from just you know preserving the environment? Well, what is it? Where does that come from? What's it rooted in? Well, when I began looking at this in more detail. Uh, as I say, the idea starts really in the States in the 1860s and, and goes on from there. And uh, I asked myself the same question. Why are these people coming up with very similar ideas uh, to each other? And it dawned on me that they were all, so far as I could see, uh, from a very similar uh, religious background ideological or religious background. They were, they were all white, Protestant, uh, Calvinist uh, Americans. And the idea that there was, um, you, you know, there was a Garden of Eden, which uh, sinful man 
began to destroy uh, after the uh, after Adam and Eve and the expulsion from from Eden, I think plays a big part in this ideology. You don't find it, for example, in in Southern Europe so much in the Catholic countries. Uh, you you don't if you go back and look at say Greek mythology. There's the idea that um, nature is 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 full of all the different gods and they're interacting with people man women children uh dead people that interaction is going on all the time so people are placed very much as part of the environment if you look at the native american traditions again you find people regarded very much as uh, integral to their surroundings you can't separate the two uh, the surroundings are, are made, if you like, sacred or holy from the presence of people in the surroundings, the Native Americans. Now, the, the Calvinist tradition is coming at it from a completely different place. They are saying there are certain areas which are God's creation. Uh, the, these are the so-called wilderness areas, and people shouldn't go there. People, uh, people will make it uh, sinful and dirty and they're just destructive and wherever they go they 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 create this um, terrible mess uh, and i think that is a that that's a a factor which began to occur to me and indeed i looked at all the all the big names in a in american um environmentalism over the last 150 years or so and i found very similar muir was of course the son of a scottish minister uh and you find the the same thing they're all coming from a very similar uh religico ideological background and it explains why we now have the idea that these areas uh, must be devoid of people that uh, people are simply destructive and must be uh, kept out and you find this misanthropic tradition in a lot of Northern European and North American environmentalism. It, 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 it's, 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 it's basically primordial to their beliefs. Have you noticed any gains that have been made in terms of trying to change this practice of, of conservation moving forward? There have been various attempts, 20 or more, I don't know, 25 years ago, uh, there was a movement uh, within, uh, within conservation to acknowledge some of these issues. There was a book written, um, there was the term conservation refugees was coined, pointing out that many millions of people, nobody knows how many millions, um, figures of 10 million, 15 million, possibly 100 million, people have been destroyed by the, this conservation over the years. And, and that came into the thinking uh, a bit. And there was a reaction of WWF, for example, uh, wrote a policy on how it should treat indigenous peoples. Uh, and that policy was about 20, more than 20 years old now. It's never been applied. The policy was simply written and then forgotten about. Um, but the, was that attempt to raise this, these issues? And the things I'm talking about are actually well known by many conservationists in the sector. 
uh, and many conservationists agree with uh, the kinds of ideas I'm putting forward. But the pressure on their careers, on their jobs, on their funding and all the rest of it means basically they have to largely keep their mouth shut, which is which is what they do largely. Mm. But uh, if they, the, the cracks are beginning to open and they are they are probably largely opening as a result of the actions of local peoples themselves. If we look at East Africa, you look at Kenya or Tanzania, for instance, the pastoralist peoples, the herding peoples with their cattle and camels and so forth, are beginning to resist uh, having these protected areas um, thrust on them and being excluded from them. There's a case now in the famous Ngoro Ngoro crater in the north of Tanzania where Maasai peoples are threatened with eviction. Maasai peoples actually have been threatened with eviction there for, for decades, but now this is stepped up and the, the government wants to uh, basically uh, get the peoples out because they think that's good for tourism and also because they want, um, they're, they're, they're doing a deal with United Arab Emirates royalty to run uh, hunting, big game hunting, uh, expeditions for the UAE royalty. So the other factor worth bearing in mind is that land, once it's so-called protected, is in fact not protected at all. Uh, it, it, tourism comes in often in a, in a major way, very clear. You, you've only got to go to the, the place like Yosemite to, to see that. Um, hotels are built roads are built, landing strips, um, artificial water holes for the game, uh, uh, hundreds of vehicles going around with tourists every day. And it's turned into profit. And indeed, a part of that profit now is uh, selling carbon credits, uh, which the NGOs, uh, the conservation NGOs benefit from. So it's, it's to do with land, it's to do with control of the land, it's also to do with money. Uh, the, these places can be turned into money. And if they are left with the local peoples, of course, as I say, largely self-sufficient, they don't produce profit for, for, for outsiders. Um, so that's the kind of thing we're up against. Well, uh, Stephen Corey, uh, thanks so much for joining us and all the best to you. Thank you for, for listening. I've been speaking with Stephen Corey. Uh, he's the former longtime director of Survival International. We reached him in Austria. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.